0: Some people earn the tag of legend and for five decades, Derek Ridges, the London-based photographer, has captured the dark carnival of the British underworld in our most radical club nights from Blitz and Skin 2 through to today's Wraith Club. Growing up in the 1960s and making his name photographing punk clubs, taking rock shots of the world's greatest through the 70s and 80s, he is a hero to many working photographers and fans of subculture alike. Humble, brilliant, and with a rock and roll gallows humour to match his dark lens. Now, 70, in this goth shop meets cold lips podcast, it's a pleasure to have a conversation, attempting to span his archive and talk about voyeurism and documenting the cultural politics of the underground. Derek Ridges stands alone in his preservation of the fleeting expressions of the night. My name's Kirsty Allison, I'm a writer, performer, and editor who grew up seeing Derek's iconic images canonized in style magazines which captured the freedom, which has always driven the British alternative culture. So it's my privilege to make this recording direct you towards the limited silver bromide and C-type signed and numbered Derek Bridges editions available by the wonderfully curated Goth Shop. I kind of started Coldlets largely because of the sort of work that you started but I first remember you creaking in leather trousers probably having been up all night when I started on loaded magazine yeah and that's it I remember you just like you coming in all those years ago so i
1: don't remember that at all and i used to wear <laughs> leather trousers didn't <laughs> yeah, so. crikey uh, maybe
0: i'm imagining that
1: yeah. i don't remember ever wearing leather trousers during the day but uh, yeah i certainly wore them at night sometimes but only under supper
0: right to blend
1: or to... Well, it wasn't really to blend. I didn't blend in anyway, but I remember I have it, I, I, I was, I'd was i been going to uh, fetish clubs for about 10 years, just wearing a cardigan and a pair of jeans. And one day someone said to me, well, why don't you just go a little bit of the way towards us and wear a pair of leather trousers or something? And so I did. But I always hated it, you know. I've still got those leather trousers, but I'd rather like to have a ritual burning of them,
0: <laughs> or, or
1: maybe I'll pitch them into the tin.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like some kind of uh, dark carnival kind of distribution yeah. method of some yeah. sort. Yeah. So you started. I mean, I remember us having a conversation. I think it was mainly that you went to Ealing Art College because I'm from Ealing originally. So. Yeah. That was always fascinating to me, that you kind of walked those streets and being there with Freddie Mercury and stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I had a fantastic time at art college. It was really my sort of coming of age as a person, really, because until I'd gone to art school, I was just a a kid, you know, a schoolboy, really, living at home with my mother and father and my grandmother. And I really didn't know anybody. You know, I had a few friends at school, but I wasn't very worldly. Uh, was very immature, and going to art school and meeting a lot of interesting people, mostly older people, because I was still I was 16 when I went there. I had a fantastic time, and yeah, I, I learnt a lot. So
0: what year would that have been in?
1: That was 67. The autumn oh, wow. Of 67.
0: Wow, Ealing in 67. My father will have been knocking about sort of shortly after that, I yeah. guess. But yeah, fun, fun era it Radler. was good
1: it was good um yeah um i mean i knew freddie at the time although he didn't really stand out particularly i mean he stood out because he was quite handsome and very well dressed and very popular but apart from that he didn't really stand out a very, very friendly chapter yeah very friendly everybody liked him
0: and what did you find in Ealing at that time what was it like was it quite remote did you go out into town did you do the sort of the the clubs that the stones were playing and all of that sort of no i didn't
1: i wasn't really you know much of a clubber in those days because i think in 67 apart from a few blues clubs and folk clubs there were no real nightclubs as you would know them from maybe the 70s or 80s onwards. There were a few discotheques, but in in London, apart from the ones for people that like soul and R&B, it was really, the discotheque was more of a tourist thing for people that were in London on holiday.
0: And what about the whole scene that, like, Doggy Fields talks about? You know, they started, like, with Andrew Logan and doing their
1: costume clubs first time i think i remember seeing him it was probably mid 70s out at um rock gigs yeah i think i saw him first around about 75 uh, when the bell played because that was an interesting night mm-hmm. i think it was a the bell played i think it was at the D- dominion and all the the people that would probably have gone on to have formed the new romantics a few years later most of those were there
0: oh that's always interesting i love the way it always folds from one thing to another you know like with sort of the whole sign the times thing and her being around adamann and i like the way that those things just float from one point to another and kind of get mixed up but the whole pink floyd thing did you notice a lot
1: Yes, I was a Pink Floyd fan from quite early on. I mean, I remember I saw them at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, where I was actually sitting on the back of the stage when they played in the middle of the night. You know, I think they didn't come on until about 3 a.m. And that was a, a good gig. By this time, there weren't really all that many people there. You know, a few thousand, but it was at Alexandra Palace, and that holds quite a lot of people
0: culture then must have been a lot smaller and I think that's the thing that I always find surprising.
1: I remember when I first started to read International Times, there was a few places you could get it in central London, but you couldn't just walk into Smiths and buy International Times, you had to go and there was a network of people that bought it, read it, and then they would hand it on, but you had to read in i think it was in the back of international science where you could get it from local people that were reading it in yeah. fact i went round to someone's house in hounslow and asked for it and he seemed quite surprised he did give it to me but i, I don't know whether it was um a properly thought through method, method of uh distributing it really you know
0: but I don't know if there was another way of, of doing it and that's what's really interesting I was just chatting to James Brown who was the editor of Loaded and yeah. he was just saying that the yeah, when he travelled with you extensively in the '90s, that you kind of had these hookups in clubs and in different places all around the world, and the way that culture had to operate—I mean, it's just—it's massively different now. But yeah, your photography and the stuff that you're doing now is a consistent in some some kind of need of people to express themselves, and I think that's why it just—it's forever classic.
1: Well, I think in in some clubs in New York and LA and a few other places, you know, Berlin and even as far away as Rio, you would run into people that you might have seen in in clubs in London, you know. So it was quite interesting that these very colourful people would get around a bit, you know.
0: Yeah, I guess that people, I mean, I, I have that with people sort of from... Manumission will sort of crop up in different places, and you know, you can always go and they'll be around somewhere. There's always a connectivity of nightlife that sometimes seems stronger and more meaningful. So, having seen the sun come up with people,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was an interesting time, I think, uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, when I still had more of a handle on what was going on. I mean, my um ear was close to the ground in those days it hasn't been close to the ground for quite a long time really i don't know
0: you're doing you're doing wraith club and stuff now and it looks pretty good and it looks the same i also spoke with lucia blake who sort of started the trans pride movement yeah um you know, I really love what she's sort of creative because I think the aesthetic of what they're doing and that kind of scene is so post filter and things being clean, it's almost that like takes pleasure in being a bit rawer, yeah, kind of that phase that we went through, and for me, it just signifies that there's a need for it to be more properly invented rather than you know, a simulacra of everything that's been before. But yeah, that's what's really funny. It's like so many of these images look like a spit of like the mid-80s. So
1: Yeah, yeah in some cases they do, yeah. I mean, I think there's always interesting things going on. A lot of people will say to me, students sometimes, uh, they'll say to me, oh, we, we wish we'd been around in those days. It looked like so much fun. But the thing is, it, it was fun at times, but it wasn't quite the same amount of fun as what it appears to be from the photos because you only get to see edited photos it must have been really like the clubs from the 60s it was mostly just ordinary people wearing jeans and jumpers standing around watching the cool people you know mods and hippies and things there was a few that were great looking everyone else was standing about watching them Really.
0: yeah yeah so kind of the image gets canonized in itself doesn't it and then that becomes yeah. kind of hyper real yeah. in terms of what it then represents when you're searching through your cultural image database, I guess. But that's what's, yeah. a, you know, that's a, that's a, yeah, they do become so sort of iconic, don't they? So so let's sort of, we're still in the 70s now, right? So you did graphic design at yeah, college. Yeah, I did
1: graphic design for a, a year actually until I was thrown off that course. And then I went on a advertising and marketing course. For a couple of years and um, i quite enjoyed that uh, i spent 10 years in the advertising business as an art director but i, I also used to write copy and i love the job there are some aspects of that job that i miss really although i you know still keep half a finger in it still mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I, I used to really love that job it was a um, really good one you could sit about with your feet on the desk all day
0: what did, what sort of clients did
1: you do then i mean i had a few decent clients towards the end of my time i was working for lyle and scott that was one that had a few brands um jockey underwear
0: was mm-hmm. one
1: of them um and uh, i did um, the minolta camera account for a while we the agency that i um work for the last agency, where it was offered the South African Air Airlines account, and I was the only person that didn't want to work on it because of the you know situation at the time, the political situation there. So I didn't work on that one. Didn't mind working on tobacco. I suppose I should have r- recused myself of tobacco, really, but it seemed like a good thing to work on at the time. And Diehard Green Label wine. That was an, another one. I wrote a commercial for that one that was filmed out next to a lake in Guildford. It was was King Arthur and I think I know that advert. It's super. Oh
0: it seems super familiar.
1: That. Well, it was. They were having a picnic next to the lake. It was. I suppose it was a bit sexist because a lot of the ads were very sexist in those days. And Queen Guinevere forgot to bring any wine. And out of the lake comes the, the Lady of the Lake, holding up a, a bottle of Green Label. and wow. the, the slogan, which I didn't write at the time, was just the one. And they finish off this bottle and they say, oh, we could get another bottle. Their the ghostly voice comes in, late, just the one. Just
0: the one. Words to live by, eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is it's interesting that you're talking about sort of not working or not wanting to work with something to support South Africa because sort of, in a way, I find your stuff super political, you know, because it is documenting the cultural politics of the underworld of people finding freedom you know that's the consistency with which i see in in your stuff and i think you you know reading that essay you wrote on bailey as well i think you have been quite conscious of what you've been documenting and i just wanted to talk to you about that whether you have been focused on what you've been collating
1: well um i wasn't really to begin with to begin with it the first Probably four or five years that I was photographing people that I used to see in clubs. I was really doing it just as an amateur, an amateur enthusiast. and I used to go to these clubs and see uh, great people and I wanted to take photographs of them. But I suppose things started to change in the spring of 1980 when I got some photos in the Sunday Times magazine. And I thought, well, maybe I could actually become a, a photographer at that point, and then they actually used similar photographs that i had taken of the same people in the Face magazine. I think it was number seven. Mm. And, um, yeah, I started to believe that maybe I could become a photographer. I wasn't really particularly successful in the advertising business. I kept getting the sack. I enjoyed the job, as I said, but I wasn't quite the right person. I didn't really fit very well. I wasn't, you know, I tried to fit, but I wasn't a smiler. You know, I didn't butter people up or smile, you know. Because you've
0: not been born a female, you know, you haven't had to play that one
1: quite as... Well, I don't really know what it was. If I'd known the answer at the time, I probably would have changed and tried to fit in more. Mm. Uh, I, I worked with some great people, some really nice people, very creative people. So it was just, I wasn't able to, to change my personality in order to fit in, even though I would have liked to have done. Mm-hmm. And so by the middle of 1980, I thought, you know, maybe I could become a photographer. And then I got the sack from the, my last advertising job at the beginning of 81. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go for a bit. I became a photographer during the day. And then I do freelance design work in the evening, or if there was more going on in the evening, I'd take photographs in the evening and work during the day. So I did that for a few months, and I I managed to yeah get enough work as a photographer quite quickly.
0: And what sort of stuff? I mean, because the thing is, I've never seen you. Although you know, I know that you've worked for publications, you know, most decent publications over the years. I've never really seen you as being a totally commercial photographer, and I think that's what kind of has made you really authentic too that you know although you are an amazing photographer and you totally know your way around a camera and you know kind of how to how to do it you know you're it's like there are two sort of elements to what you do there's the like the portraiture which is kind of you know they're not official portraits it doesn't seem but kind of that's what uh gives you your within sort of street photography and street fashion photography your stuff is just, you kind of, I think you respect who it is that, you know, that you're photographing. So you really capture them.
1: Well, um, that may well be. It's kind of you to say so, but I don't really know. I don't feel that I'm judgmental at all. By the same token, I don't necessarily need to know very much about the, the person that I'm photographing. I like it all to come out of the process rather than out of my own mind. just mm. you know? Stand there in front of someone, try and take a photograph if it 's a portrait in a nightclub or on the street i don 't try to i don 't ever like to direct anybody, but I was a, a rock photographer i I think I was anyway for twenty five years, and then it was the, the complete opposite. I used to have to definitely direct people for that, otherwise it wouldn't have worked. I started off taking photographs of rock bands and musicians, and I tried not to Direct them, but just the photographs ended up being really boring. So I, I quickly changed.
0: It's a fine line, though, isn't it? Uh, that kind, of, I like to be told what to do in photos. It makes it a lot easier because then you have the, yeah, to have some direction of what you're doing. It kind of makes it a lot, a lot easier.
1: Me a <laughs> long time to learn properly what I was doing. Yeah. I mean, to begin with, I wasn't directing people and the photographs turned out badly. Mm-hmm. Then I started to direct people more and the photographs turned out better, but they still weren't really perfect for a few years. And I got into my stride, I suppose, in by about 84 with that. And now looking back, I think maybe I, I would have been better off not directing people so much. I think maybe my photographs would have been better, you know, just gone with the flow a bit more but i didn't have the maturity to recognize that when i was a young photographer really
0: wow it's so interesting the way you change through but i mean it's also the what you see in those photographs and kind of i think you know your look is really developed so yeah it kind of goes with the territory of photographing club people right that they're gonna show off a bit
1: that's true but another thing that people don't always realize from my photos is that occasionally those clubs were extremely dark and i couldn't even really particularly see what i was photographing sometimes some of the time very dark very noisy very sweaty and my photographs sometimes they come out looking nicely lit at a contemplative moment it wasn't always like that i mean there'd be i'd be standing there there'd be people walking backwards and forwards whilst i was trying to take a photograph and honestly sometimes i couldn't even see probably the person that I was photographing I couldn't see what gender they were very often not that that would necessarily matter but you know I couldn't really see properly
0: I mean you didn't see it at the time either because you're using analogue too right so oh, you probably sure, had yeah. to, no, no idea what's going and on and I couldn't
1: focus I had to pre-focus oh that yeah. was easy that was easy enough to do yeah. You know, it was either three feet or six feet for me was, <laughs> and everything was fit into that <laughs> oh, i love that
0: and do, how many photos what was your sort of shooting ratio compared to your final edit?
1: well here's the thing i mean i wish i could say different but i reckon probably 50 percent of the photographs i took in clubs in those days there was something wrong with them weren't in focus weren't properly exposed were developed wrong maybe the chemicals were a bit too old or occasionally i took the the top off before it was fixed or i shook it up and you could see bubbles i mean i made every single possible mistake you could make and i made them three or four times consistently
0: (laughs) so what happens if you go out all night your whole
1: life i guess yeah well i mean to begin with when i started when i was still working i used to hitch home you know i didn't i had a car some of the time but not all of the time and the times that i didn't have a car i used to have to hitch home sometimes it's it's it, it was possible to do in those days i mean you couldn't i don't think you could do it now i don't. you couldn't hitch across london now i don't think but in those days you could still do it but it still would involve a bit of waiting around a little bit of walking so sometimes i would get in at half past five you know i'd have to be up to go to work at half past seven so I was quite tired. Maybe this is why I got the sack, thank <laughs> uh, you. How
0: did that work? Did you just get invited to go to the clubs? Did you get permission? No,
1: anything but invited. <laughs> I, mean, I got disinvited to go out of them. Yeah, I used to turn up when I first t- turned up to go to most of those clubs back in the late 70s. I mean, you could pay to get in, but when I turned up to Billy's and the blitz so he used to try to say oh no i'm sorry sir it's private party tonight it's not for you you know and i used to have to hang about and wear them down until they let me in steve strange to begin with he wouldn't let me in and i just used to have to wear him down which i could do eventually (laughs) he was a nice enough guy you know but he didn't want a lot of people like who looked like me in his club i mean if you there's a few photographs of me in the clubs so i'm actually wearing a, a cardigan in some of them and or a leather jacket i might have come straight from work you know mm. because i to work quite late very often so i could have come straight from work yeah you know, I, I managed to get into these places eventually uh, some of the clientele in the early days of the fetish clubs some of the clientele did definitely didn't want me there
0: well yeah i mean the fetish thing was that that was kind of where i was getting to with the whole underground yeah. I mean it really I, was it was truly underground but,
1: uh, Well wow. we certainly to begin with the Skin 2 Club in, at Stallions in Falkenberg Court At the beginning of the 80 in 83 it was a very tight knit little group The first year or 18 months I don't think they liked me being there at all
0: mm-hmm. But you were there
1: and they had like I a, was there yeah. Yeah,
0: that's like, yeah I got
1: offered out a few times but I didn't go Right. I mean, offered out for a fight. Not
0: right, yeah. But it must have been, you must have seen a lot of things. If you look at clubs in Berlin now, you know, photographers just, they've got a, you know, a no photography
1: role. Yeah. Well, I think they, they still do have in London in the fetish clubs, but I think if you've got, if you know the people that are running it and you're discreet and polite, I think it's, it's okay. And mm. I always was. I was always very polite. You know, I never used to take photographs in, in those clubs if I wouldn't, hadn't asked people first.
0: Yeah, and I, I get that. I mean, like with your, it may be a voyeuristic scene, but it's not the same as you going in with a, like a little button in your pocket and a little rose with a camera in it. No, it's not it, quite like that. that. <laughs> no. Um,
1: no, I think there's a lot of voyeurism in most photographers though, really.
0: Yeah, that thing of you know you are voyeuristic and kind of sneaking in. And how much you you and your work will have seeped into subculture? I mean, when I was growing up, all I had was a face and ID to learn about what was yeah. going on underground. If you were taking these photographs of body modification in the States, that wasn't really going on here um, in the nineties so much in the sort of eighties, nineties. So, kind of you probably encouraged a lot of that by putting that freakishness into the public eye
1: yeah i wouldn't want to contemplate that too much
0: (laughs) you are responsible for every tattoo yeah
1: i mean when i first started becoming interested in tattooed people i think it was around about 1980 81 and i went to the face and got them to commission me to write an article about the the tattoo scene at the time, there were some tattooists that didn't want me to photograph them because of my approach. I I'd photographed a lot of tattooed skinheads, and they were, a lot of them were tattooed in jail, or uh, they were tattooed by scratchers. And some of the tattooists didn't want their work being associated with the kind of work that I was photographing. So I I suppose I did understand that. Dennis Cockle was one that didn't want to me to photograph him for his work. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, um, yeah, I can see, definitely see their point, because some of those tattoos from that time were not good at all, really. And some of the kids that were tattooed, I think they were persuaded, really, by the people doing it, that to have them done, you know, the facial tattoos and stuff like that. I think um very often it might have been a couple cans of lager as payment for doing the the, the work
0: yeah i mean this is what i heard really yeah Yeah. i mean because that's the one on the ones on Derek ridges editions there you've got quite a few of those face tattoos Oh, yeah, nice. well,
1: I was very interested early on in the, the facial tattoos and the antisocial tattoos Some to such an extent that if I was on a bu- in a bus and I saw someone with a with a facial tattoo, I'd jump off the bus and run after them.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you if you still do that.
1: I don't do it so much, no. When in fact, I don't take photographs on the street so much at all now because uh of my age really i find that uh, i've still got the energy but i find it much much harder to make contact with people because a lot of young people especially young women don't want to be photographed by old men and i can see their point really you know they don't want to be chased after down the street by an old man with a camera
0: it's really changed hasn't it
1: well it has yeah because when i photographed people started photographing people on the street and in clubs in the 70s sometimes i was the first person to photograph them they'd never been photographed by anybody not even their family i mean i I come from a family of people that might have taken a few photographs on holiday but i in my whole life i never saw my father take a photograph i don't even know if he had i don't think he had a camera
0: and now everybody yeah wow yeah i mean and now kind of so many people who call themselves street photographers and kind of the whole industry of replication of image over and over again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's another reason that I don't do it so much now because I think I've handed the baton on to other photographers doing the same kind of work. And I think they're, they're doing it a lot better than I could do it now anyway. So
0: I mean do you so this thing you haven't answered me about whether or not you do see it as being like a kind of political move to create this archive?
1: Well I think you every everything you do is political to some extent mm. um, but I I try to be objective I, I know there's no such thing as objectivity, but I do my best going in that direction. Yeah. Uh, I've photographed a lot of people that have got in the past anyway, racist tattoos and things like that. And um, I just think you have to, in, in, in those kind of instances, you have to allow the photographs to speak for themselves. Uh, the more I can shut up about it, the better it is, really.
0: Yeah, it's like me talking about what I'm writing or poems. I don't really want to be, I'd rather just let the art talk, particularly in, in times like now when there's that you can get hung up. I'd rather just produce something that was work. Really, yeah. Something. Well,
1: the, the, the last time I had photographs um, of skinheads that were in The Guardian, I started to read the comments and I had to stop because, um, yeah, I don't think anybody agreed with me. That I, you know, everyone, they either thought I was giving, um, advertising these people, fascists, or the people from the right thought I was trying to show them up, you know, really. So I just wanted it to be record uh, what the people were doing, not just one group, but many different groups, and then allow the photographs to speak for themselves. And then also, by the same token, let people say what they think as well. And I don't necessarily want to read it all.
0: I wanted to ask about how how you do approach someone and what you've learned about doing that.
1: Well, yes, I've learned a lot over the years. I think you've got to be completely honest. I don't think you can patronize people. And yeah, it's the some of these skinheads as well, to begin with, they were very attuned to when someone was trying to patronize them. And so you just think you have to be completely honest. Even if your views are not the same as their views, and that becomes very obvious very quickly, you still have to be honest. I don't necessarily offer any opinions if I'm not asked, but... that's another thing i think i would keep quiet a lot of the time and so i'd ask them if they mind being photographed after that point if they say yes um i'll try and keep completely quiet and not say any more, not chit chat to them or anything it's just so that i'm um you know just there in front of them after a, a, a while it can unnerve people slightly and that's at that point i get the better photographs yeah it's
0: because the same slightly, as being a writer it's exactly the yeah, same as a journalist yeah. it's that awkward silence that people feel right
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: so yeah it's a really british gaze that you've got as well i think you know it's it's is really it? yeah it is because well, for me like when i look at it all in context now the whole peak from the 70s to now yeah i mean it really does suggest this dark carnival of of what we do kind of in the underworld and that rare freedom and britain is a privileged place to have that particular set of values or you know ways that we express ourselves it's uh, yeah it's a strange thing
1: well i wonder if we're ever going to get back to that i hope so but i don't think it's going to come anytime soon
0: I was thinking about this though, and I wanted to talk to you about this because, like, there's this whole thing in China at the moment, and they're calling it revenge consumerism, where they are just rampant and Louis Vuitton and you know Gucci, whoever. They're seeing more, more sales than they've ever seen before on home turf because people used to go overseas to buy it, but now they're all buying it locally. And yeah. This mad return to how it was
1: before, and. I'm just wondering whether it will, or the coming generations will ever be in these dark, sweaty nightclubs where you can hardly move.
0: You know, when I was going out in the 90s, there weren't any cameras. You know, it was really rare. I mean, if you went out with a camera, people were like, what are you doing? I mean, it wasn't really like that because we were more concerned about having a good time. Or people cannot trade against the system that they're in. And that was what was always attractive about clock culture for me was that it was somewhere where things went on away from it and you shoot digital now
1: yeah no I've been completely digital now really for nearly 15 years Mm. and I feel so liberated from the era of film although (laughs) nowadays if I I want to shoot film it's because it definitely wants to do it rather than have to do it when I started Having a camera was an excuse to gaze into other more interesting lives than my own. A window, opening a window and looking through at a party that was going on, you know. Something was a little bit more interesting. And yeah, I suppose it is an excuse, really. Mm
0: well that's the excuse for going out though isn't it that is the excuse for going
1: out it's to live a super life isn't it yeah yeah but you see the thing is when i when i went out with my camera i never used to really socialize with people i mean i think a lot of people thought i was a old misery because i'd just be standing around watching what was going on i'd rarely talk to people i mean i used to have a couple of drinks if I wasn't uh, driving and just stand around watching, you know, all the time that I might have been sociable and happy, I'd be missing out on taking photographs. So I was very, very focused throughout the time when I was taking most of my club photos, which I suppose was the the 10 years after Punk. And um, some of the people that I thought were a bit aloof and unfriendly thought the same thing about me but since uh, facebook and everything's come along it's we've discovered that neither of us was quite like that you know and we were friendly it's just we weren't friendly to one another at the time and a lot of the people that from the clubs at that time are much friendlier now than they ever were at the time
0: with age and insight I kind of see that it was quite special
1: yeah i mean there were a few people that helped me and were always very Nice and let me into their clubs, like uh, Rusty Egan and Chris Sullivan, people like that.
0: But you were helpful towards him as well. I mean, that's the thing, you know, I like suppose, going yeah, going, going into the wag docket. Yeah. You know, I love the thing about Ginsburg always having a camera, or Patty Smith, you know, grabbing whoever's around her. You know, I love all yeah. of that stuff because it is. It's important that we document our lives, but that's just on steroids on Instagram
1: now. Yeah. I so you're living I'd for have, the
0: that instead. It's... I wish
1: I'd have had a, a camera in the 60s. I think it would have been much more interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: see everybody around in certain places, mm. all kinds of people. The very first time I ever got taken out by a girl, you know, my first girlfriend, we went to an all-nighter at the roundhouse. As I walked in, I had to step over David Hockney, snogging on the floor. <laughs> And that was the first time in my life I'd ever seen a man kissing another man. And it was David Hockney. Oh, wow. I used to see him around occasionally. I've got a photograph in Gossips, I think around about 82,
0: 83. Mm, That was a great club. The thing about all of COVID is that, you know, these people who are very much the fabric of exactly that British gaze that I'm talking about, they are not getting... Yeah, they're the ones who are really the true artists in a lot of ways of this kind of identity that is very much British that yeah. aren't getting rewarded at the moment, and kind of that is whether or not that true underground hustle is going to be abolished.
1: Um, oh, I think it. I think it'll always be there, but I think it just evolves in different ways and becomes something slightly different. But I think we'll. We're going to have um, underground clubs again one day and, you know, underground basement clubs as well. Mm. You know, Mm. they can never find the places to have these underground basement clubs because I think Gossips is a hotel now, isn't it?
0: yeah well they all are aren't they and but i mean all the hotels are shutting too so it's kind of, yeah. i i was really excited with covid honestly i was kind of like wow it's all going to get destroyed all the institutions are going to break it's i'm going to do theater in my garden it's going to be amazing
1: covid pro- apart from um obviously the sad aspect of some people not surviving. It hasn't, you know, necessarily been a bad thing for people like me. It's given me a chance to focus more on what I'm doing, focus on what I want to do and a chance to go through my, um, negatives. And I've got tens of thousands that no one's ever seen that I should really scan and smarten up and, and you know, maybe they'll never see them in my lifetime but maybe they'll see them one day
0: brilliant good looking forward to seeing all of those sooner yeah. sooner rather than later um, james said to ask you about jumbo's clown room in oh, LA. Yes. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah that was a good little club but then there were there's always been some interesting little clubs around that you know probably get forgotten by most people but you yeah, jumbo's clown room is quite an interesting place it was just a a bar Uh, and they had strippers but they were not really i think the strippers were there that just because they more amateur type strippers it was quite a nice place it was out of a little bit out of the way you know Well, i don't think it's quite so terrible at the moment but i think it's going to be a bad news in the coming years once um covid is out of the way then
0: but yeah, I, you know, I've, I've always felt it with London, you know, being part of club culture, I've always felt like I am invested in it. And that's kind of who I am and what's created me and what I've always been around and kind of, I've felt a duty to kind of preserve that. And um, in some sense and kind of educate through the work that I was doing at DJ magazine to, to kind of let people know what that, Cultural history is to sort of feed forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, su- I suppose there is a, a bit of a duty. If people have been kind enough to uh, allow me to photograph them over the years, I, I, you know, I feel a little bit of a duty to, you know, try to give something back as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it is. I think you're giving people liberation by by offering that as an image, really. Yeah. So. And an image is so pervasive, and it does so much more just seeing something where you see that as an option, so yeah, it's really important your your work that's what Lucia Blake was saying too was just you know that otherwise all of that history would disappear, so it would,
1: yeah yeah
0: we wouldn't know about it because it does go on behind closed doors, so if you haven't been taking those photos, we wouldn't. We wouldn't know. Did you get affected by sort of seeing Studio 54 and that sort of culture and sort of, you no, know, the Bill um, Brandt stuff and all of that?
1: No, not really. I mean, Studio 54 was happening really in the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah. And this was before I really started taking photographs. And I, by the time I got to um, New York, it was 85, I think that was over. Studio 54 would have been over by then. And some of the super clubs from that time were maybe on their last legs, like Area was one, and The World. And um, it was more like I, I went to some of the smaller clubs, like Pyramid, places like that. That was an interesting club. And The Limelight as well. That was funny. One day, I was in New York and I met a couple uh, or a friend. Um, i've been to school with and he was a executive for a, you know, a european company and he was with a friend so there was me and there was these two executives and we decided to we go to the limelight so we pull up in a cab and there's all these beautiful people standing around the door that they wouldn't let in the cab driver sees us three get out of the he's and he beckons us over through the crowd lets us straight in and i think the only reason he did was to piss off the other people because we look so unlike the kind of people you, that would ever get into a club like that it was funny I, to, to this day i still don't understand it And
0: um, i mean did you kind of within the you were talking about david Hockney? and um, did you meet people who wanted to have their photo taken i mean you've done so many well-known
1: people of actors and writers and yeah actually working for magazines like NME and the face uh, as a editorial photographer mostly you're photographing people that don't really want their photograph taken they want their photograph in the magazine they don't want you there doing it they don't want to spend that the time it takes to allow you to take the photograph. There's a few people, you know, really big stars that are very nice, very friendly, very helpful. People like uh, Robert Plant, extremely nice person. And uh, Keith Richards, another one, very nice. Ron Wood, lovely people who will give you the time. But it's quite often the stars on their way up, they haven't got the time. They don't want to spend any time. I photograph um, MC Hammer. He wouldn't even get up off his chair. To let me photograph him he just said to me you yeah, know you've got to do it here i'm sitting here you know wouldn't even get up off his chair and he was surrounded by a lot of acolytes you know so it was very hard to take a decent photograph
0: but where is that oh, tony blair blair now is the same
1: thing tony blair was the same i photographed him in his office in um the house of commons and this was before he was prime minister he wouldn't even step outside the door to allow me to photograph him in quite a nice vaulted corridor I had to photograph him in his office and it looked very uninteresting he was just sitting in a chair in his uninteresting office where six feet away it could have, would have been an interesting photograph so what's the lesson from that then uh well I think the lesson is if you can take decent photographs of people sitting in their chair and not moving out of their office, then that—that's the lesson. Really, you have to have to use what you're given and make a decent photograph out of anything. Yeah. And the people that can do it—I'm not saying I'm one, but I used to try—are a lot better than the people that just get pissed off and or demotivated. You've got to be highly motivated to take decent photographs of people like that. I think.
0: Mm -hmm. right the absolute
1: best people in that genre can do it well in in any circumstance
0: and i guess make it look like it's not like it is effortless too
1: yeah sure that's right yeah
0: and like it was a chosen thing rather than the five minutes sort of interview or kind of that five minute space thing that's often often the case
1: photographers um, you know, then they get one frame that can make something brilliant,
0: and that is that with developing, or is that with?
1: I just think it must be an attitude, really mm. an attitude, uh, a command of the the medium. Someone uh. like Anton Corbin, for instance, you yeah. don't often see a bad photograph taken by Anton Corbyn
0: yeah, that is true, but maybe we don't see all of the bad ones. What other photographers do you like? What
1: well, my um. I like um, Gary Winogrand. He was, uh, you know, one of my heroes Mm. as a photographer. He's not really, um, you know, I don't think he's very PC these days because he used to, you know, lurk about taking photographs of women on the street. I think Mm. he's probably been cancelled, for all I know. Okay, but you couldn't take those kind of photographs now. You can't wonder about council estates photographing other people's children now, can you? Some people might say, well, why would you want to? But I was just photographing everything I. Wandering about, I photographed a couple of blokes in a gents' toilet. And I think people would look at that a bit askance these days, wouldn't they? We just used to photograph everywhere I went, Mm. you know, in the mid 70s.
0: Mm. But that was a different lens, I guess. So, because everything wasn't getting documented and Google Mirror World didn't really exist. So, you couldn't see everything. I mean, and there wasn't so much telly, there wasn't so much film. And they're just wasn't so much knowledge about the way the world
1: looked yeah london was a completely different place really it's it changed totally after margaret thatcher got into power in 79 but in the 70s it was quite a scruffy place still a lot of bomb sites in the 70s really see a a bomb site in london now but um i don't think there are any but there were still you know quite a few bomb sites in london in the '70s and you know there was rubbish in the streets you know during the strikes and you had the uh three-day week some of it was very depressing i remember you know in the 70s leicester square was a very very scruffy place with peep shows and places like that in leicester square you know it was you know there were glue sniffs sitting around all um all over the place in fact i used to photograph the glue snippers <laughs> and the homeless people i photographed them as well you know there were some quite interesting homeless people there was one old guy that had um a big beard he looked quite fierce but you know, it was a very nice chap and he had ulcers on his legs and you know when it was sunny he would got his legs out so um that wasn't particularly photogenic but he told me he was um a prisoner of war from germany and he been in a prison camp in, in England and he's never gone home. He liked in England better than he liked in Germany.
0: The club culture in terms of it getting sanitised in that way, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I see as an arc through, through your work, is that it did go through that sort of glitzy, shiny sort of filter bit, but it's kind of gone back to this sort of need for it not to be like that. You moment. know,
1: some of the clubs that you get around now are are quite smart, really. I mean, they they are. Um, uh, some of them look much smarter than they used to look. I mean, some of the old clubs I can remember in the 80s. There was one in Westbourne Grove, Pleasure Dive. The people would be clubbing, and there'd be the Hoover and all the bins that were tidied up during the day It'd still be there when the club was going. Oh, there's a Hoover in some of my photos. They didn't bother. Oh, it, it was a mess all over the floor.
0: Is that where um, that Mark Armand shot comes from? The one that you did with him Hoovering oh no, a grave?
1: No, we no, we were just wandering about looking for somewhere to take a photograph, and someone had left an old Hoover in Brompton Cemetery. I don't have a fetish about Hoovers, upright <laughs> Hoovers. <laughs>
0: the truth is revealed finally yeah 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 yeah. and so yeah i mean that's that's what i get concerned about now is just that like this total sanitization of culture so you know people being so fearful of dirt and i mean covid is just sort of one of those things and it gets replicated in terms of squat culture getting annihilated and kind of free space not existing and sort of club space I guess so it's interesting you know the whole there's been so many underground parties in Covid and sort of going back to that acid house sort of freedom again because the clubs are shut and rent is so high in London for even doing setting clubs up it's uh, yeah
1: well maybe maybe next year the rave scene will make a comeback
0: it's all looking that way yeah. looking that way yeah i think festivals will be huge again and i just think that that super sponsor thing it's kind of the unimaginative sort of way of it returning to a sort of weekend holidays for workers yeah. but beneath that there'll always be multiple levels and i do think that's the whole thing about britain that the conservatives are well aware of that you know british culture is that we do rebel and we do create art in adversity, so I think yeah. that yeah, it's like the politics of regeneration and just getting artists into cheap spaces or estate agents doing that to go and make Margate look pretty or whatever it is. So yeah, I think it's much. A, I'm sure there's been conversations to to that extent, really.
1: Yeah.
0: Commercial work? Are you doing much of that?
1: I was quite a bit until the early part months of this year and i haven't done any anything like that now for um nine months and it may well be that i don't get back to that work because of course i'm 70 now and people might think well we don't really want to endanger him you know i mean if it's a a room full of young people um, all photographing young people, that's fine. But, you know, it, it's possible that I might not get back to that. I'd like to.
0: Will you take a vaccine? Will you
1: do that? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not an anti-vaxxer by yeah. any means. But I want to, I, I always have, in the recent years, I've been much more picky about what kind of work I did. Whereas once upon a time, I would say yes to everybody. And I'm a bit more picky and it may well be, have to get even more picky you know, mm. years ahead. But i'm mm. happy to yeah carry on shooting fashion
0: i love that stuff that you're doing with beachy i think they've got it so right at the moment i just yeah. I, I love what they're i love what they're going for and in, in all of it i think it's yeah well, don't
1: ask me about the clothes
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you get a good look you get a good look
1: from that i mean i have absolutely no idea what where i mean i Thought I had a bit of a handle on what they would where they would go in a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, and I quite liked some of it. It was, you know, outrageous and a bit daft. But I've absolutely no idea what their yeah, 2020 stuff was about. No idea. With
0: with the stylists, though, do you like working with stylists? Oh, um, sure.
1: With fashion, I don't think there's any way that uh, you couldn't use stylists because, I mean sometimes the clothes on their own uh, well I don't know perhaps I shouldn't say anything but uh, you definitely need stylists for some of those clothes really yeah and models right yeah oh sure yeah yeah yeah. that's the reason that I like doing it is because I still like to photograph people yeah the models are fantastic looking yeah yeah and and women I mean the men are the better looking than the women these days aren't they
0: have you seen the look of people change? Have you seen that kind of over the years? Have you seen kind of people's actual physical faces change? And-
1: well no, but not really, but you see in fashion back in the seventies when I used to art direct fashion shoots in those days, all the models had to be beautiful in those days, but you know you don't have all the models aren't beautiful these days. they can be anything you know any anyone can be a model provided they fit the clothes can't they yeah i think that's quite good yeah really i mean some of the people the models back in the 70s were a little bit boring looking especially the men the male models you know there was one guy perhaps i shouldn't say his name but um i think he might have been the highest paid male model in the country and we got him in to shoot some uh underwear and he had to wear under these pants he had to wear this kind of you know garment that flattened everything down because he said his wife didn't like to anyone's barely see his proper shape, you know. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, no some of those guys, he was a nice bloke actually. He was a farmer, in fact, mm. from Yorkshire. Mm. Um yeah, some of those the male models were were not uh it just look like they'd stepped out of the pages of a comic but now nowadays they're all every all different types of person can be a a model can't they and i yeah. think it's all better for it
0: i mean it's a, the diversity of size has changed so yeah. much yeah i, mean, I, I think that's yeah. good yeah, yeah i yeah. think it's great i mean i was yeah. looking at a shoot someone had done earlier today and i was like wow she's got you know Sizeable hips, and it doesn't look like she's having to not eat for three three weeks before doing a shoot. Um, Yeah. So that you know that, but again, it's kind of like this puritanical thing. You know, we had heroin chic in the nineties, and it was kind of it had such a strong aesthetic to it. Sort of see it as being quite a consumerist.
1: I think a lot of magazines won't shoot female models that are too thin these days, will they?
0: Yeah, but there's still a, a certain type of fashion person who likes clothes to hang on a.
1: Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hang on racks. But, yeah. Is it, but, you know, again, with fashion, the reason that you might not have worked for nine months doing that is because everything's on hold, because no one's buying yeah,
1: clothes. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, that might be the, the case, yeah. Yeah, there's there's, there's there's so little going on. Are they trying stuff on?
0: No, there's, I mean, you walk through kind of at Mayfair at the moment, and I mean, there's no one there. It's, yeah,
1: I haven't been to central London since March. I mean, I've driven through, I never was any of any one of these tribes, which was uh, the thing that allowed me to go from different tribes to different tribes. You know, yeah. Like, so I could be with the skinheads all day, photographing mm. them, and then I could go directly from the skinheads to the Blitz or Billy's. Mm. Sure,
0: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but I mean, because it was sold to me as a whole package of, you know, under the roof of the face or ID, and it all being one whole club culture that was very fashion-based, that was kind of what I grew up in. in the,
1: yeah. Of yeah. seeing
0: it as one whole, one whole thing and not quite. Well, it most as... probably
1: was in the 90s, yeah, certainly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well I'm not easily offended by people. Um, yeah, even if people have had me over it um, for any reason, then I usually forget about it. You know, I'm not um, someone that bears grudges or anything like that. You know, I'm a real easy going bloke.
0: Yeah, but you're pretty liberated too and sort of, Maybe. I mean to be yeah, but to be, you know to to kind of captured captured everything what similarities do you see between you and your subjects when you're taking them sort of particularly well, the I, carnival I
1: think ones? I'm similar to quite a lot of my subjects inside, but just not outside and it's the outside I'm photographing usually, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I mean when I was young I was probably just as mixed up as some of the, that them were they were yeah I mean yeah and I, I think I, I am a little bit like some of my subjects really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and have you heard so if someone was going to be taking a portrait of you now yeah what would you what would you want them to do
1: I, I don't have an opinion about that. I mean, I have been photographed by a few photographers. Mm. I just let them get on with it, you know, and mm. tell me what to do, and I'll do it because I never want to uh, treat photographers badly because I've been treated badly by a few photographers mm. in my my time. Um,
0: what, when you're uh,
1: like David ba- David was very nice. No, no, just when I had to photograph other photographers, they haven't always been nice to me. You know, David Bailey was very nice. A very friendly, charming man. I photographed Patrick Litchfield as well. He was very nice. Um, but maybe I shouldn't say anything about the ones I didn't like so much.
0: Where did you grow up, Derek?
1: Mostly in Hounslow. Yeah, just a little bit um, west of Ealing.
0: Hmm, whereabouts? Um, in H- Heston. Uh, Heston,
1: part of Hounslow. Hmm. Nothing ever happened in those days days although in the times that uh, have passed since i've discovered that um jimmy page spent some time when he was young in heston and also richie blackmore when I, mean, I never saw either of them hanging about there but uh, apparently they did uh, mm-hmm. you know grow up in heston some of the time as well so um nothing ever happened the, the most exciting thing that used to happen in the evenings was the fish and chip shop so me and my mates used to sometimes hang about outside that because it was the only thing that was open at night
0: yeah but the boring is i grew up in Ealing i was desperate to get into clubs to get out of the banality of it already so although there was quite a bit going on in Ealing but it still felt enclosed compared to the delights of what lay beyond really so.
1: yeah sure yeah
0: did you go out at all when you were a teenager, there or it was eating art? Not
1: College really. That no, the, the, the kind of places I used to go to were in my mid-teens were folk clubs and stuff like that to listen to musicians, folk clubs, and started to go to gigs. In fact, really, the I saw all the best bands I was ever was ever going to see, probably before I was even 19. You know, bands like. Uh, the Doors and Jefferson Airplane and um, Pink Floyd, those kind of bands. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. God.
0: And yeah. did, so did you expect that to continue? Did you think that you'd seen... Yeah, everything,
1: everything that started off, I started off to discover when I was 16 and 17. I thought it was always going to be like that not just music life in general mm-hmm. you know i always thought it was because i mean it was a little bit like um swinging london for a bit you know if you're an art student at ealing in the 60s it wasn't there it was london was swinging a little bit around there and you know i used to go down king's road and see all the beautiful people and i thought it was always going to be like that way but of course it wasn't like that at all um you know i had a a family you know not long after that. And, um, yeah, I mean, although it was, you know, ultimately brilliant for my whole life, um, I didn't have the same sort of freedom after that point, you know? Yeah.
0: And, and I mean, with your, with your family, have they always been cool about you going out?
1: Um, well, my, are you talking about my wife? Not yeah. really. She wasn't to begin <laughs> with. No, not by any means, but I think she just got used to it after, after a while.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, she wasn't really cool on me going out to clubs to begin with, but what are you going to do? you know I mean, we came to some sort of understanding over the, the years. I mean, I've been with my um, partner now nearly 50 years.
0: And has she Just always about been?: 50 years Has she always been in a wheelchair was that no, no, no,
1: no she's, she's in a wheelchair because she back in um, I think it was 2005 had terminal cancer. Well, she survived that, but uh, it did leave her with the inability to walk. We consider ourselves quite lucky because it was she was given six months to live back in 2005. Mm. So we hurriedly got married, you know, because we were both really basically old hippies. Mm. And we got married to, just to, you know, sort out the financial aspects. But yeah, she survived. Mm. So, I mean, that's lucky. It's not unlucky, is it? No, that's
0: beautiful. Have your kids ended up being creative or have they... Well,
1: um, my son is a journalist. He's working in Hong Kong at the moment. And my daughter is um, creative, but she works with me some of the time. Nice. Cool. I guess she'll take over. My archive after I'm no longer here. I think
0: you're just legendary. It's it's so important. It's yeah, it's, it's, certainly, so...
1: it's legendary in this house anyway.
0: <laughs> well no, it is it is unique and it's the best portrayal of club culture in the underground that I've ever seen. So it's possible to purchase Derek Ridges editions via Goth Shop. They are limited silver bromide and C type signed and numbered photographs and they're beautiful thanks for listening for me derek is an unparalleled documenter of club culture so yeah enjoy and thanks for listening if you'd like to listen to any of my cold lips conversations with heroes of the underworld from Dr. John Cooper Clark to Tricky and Danielle de Picciotto. Please do subscribe uh, by finding them scattered across the internet. And yeah, again, log on to gothshop.co to find out more. And this was a Cold Lips Meets Goth Shop production. Thank you.